Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Leviticus chapter 25. This chapter sets out the very unique principles of land tenure that were characteristic of the Mosaic Covenant. The basic idea is expressed in verses 23 to 24. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. Quote. So, in this system, God owned the land, and the people of Israel were his tenants. They were assigned a holding that was intended to be perpetual, and this system of redemption and jubilee was intended to ensure that people did not become permanently separated from the land and reduced to serfdom and slavery. That appears to be its primary purpose. Gordon J. Wenham says here, The main purpose of these laws is to prevent the utter ruin of debtors, closed quote. The vast majority of debt in agricultural societies was associated with the land, and specifically with the dangers and risks associated with farming the land. A landowner typically borrowed money to buy seed and to hire laborers and to buy oxen and other tools and implements, all of which debt would be settled ideally come harvest time. But of course, if the harvest did not yield as much as the landowner had hoped, then he would become indebted. If he was unable to pay his debts, he would have to sell off pieces of the land. If he had no more land to sell, then he would have to sell himself and his family into slavery. That's how it worked in agrarian societies. And so these principles of tenure were intended to mitigate the risk and devastating consequences associated with that system. At the same time, remember John Calvin's adage about the ceremonial laws of the Jews serving as a tutelage? So even as we appreciate the moral and ethical benefits of the laws, we also want to consider what they may be teaching us in terms of their enduring religious instruction. R.K. Harrison, like Wenham, notes the obvious benefit to the poor and to the debtor, but he goes on to highlight some of the embedded pedagogical functions as well. He says, The Jubilee legislation had as its basic theme the liberation of that which was bound. As a result, it reminded the Israelites every 50 years of the fact that once the people of God had been bound in Egypt, victims of an oppressive native regime, but that they had been liberated at the time of the Exodus by a miraculous display of divine power. Close quote. He goes on to say the sabbatical year demonstrated that God was the supreme provider and that while man could assist the process by his cooperation, it was from God that all things came, close quote. So this entire cycle of Sabbath years and Jubilee years was both a safeguard for the poor and a catechism for the nation. It reminded them of their salvation and it commended to them a particular way of life and a peculiar set of priorities. The entire discipline, if observed, would remind the people that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of the Lord, Deuteronomy 8, 3. 
In terms of structure, this chapter is divided into three fairly large sections, each section break being indicated by the phrase, I am the Lord your God. Each section closes with a brief exhortation giving reasons and encouragements for observing these laws and regulations. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself, and for your male and female slaves, and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you, and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. So in this first section, which runs roughly from verse 2 through to verse 17, we have a variety of regulations about the land. Here in this first paragraph, we find regulations regarding a Sabbath year. Of course, we're used to the general pattern of the weekly Sabbath being applied to months. We saw that back in chapter 23. Now here we see the same pattern applied to years. Every seventh year, the land itself is to enjoy a type of Sabbath. On this Sabbath year, the fields and the vines are to be left uncultivated. People, of course, will need to store up food, and everyone is allowed to eat whatever grows naturally, but there is to be no formal farming or cultivation. So on one level, this would be a giant test of faith, like the original Sabbath challenge in Exodus chapter 16. They would have to trust that God would supply enough in the sixth year to provide food for that year and for the year to come. And they'd have to settle into a more simple and subsistence routine. It would be a challenge for them. And it would be a humbling time, a leveling time. Land owners, of course, were allowed to scrounge for food on their own land, but not in any sort of proprietary way, meaning that they could not restrict the access of the poor to their land. It was fair game for all. And the rich had to forage alongside the poor. Again, though, just like the weekly Sabbath, this was intended to remind the Israelites that man is about more than work, and man is about more than food. We are not ants. We are not pigs. We are human beings. And ultimately, our purpose and identity does not arise from our property or prosperity. We are creatures who resemble and represent Almighty God. So the Sabbath year was meant to shock men and women out of that rut of work, eat, sleep, work, repeat that we have a strong tendency to fall into. Verse 8. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the Day of Atonement you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year, and proclaim liberty, 
throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the jubilee. And he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price. And if the years are few, you shall reduce the price. For it is the number of the crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God. For I am the Lord your God. After seven cycles of seven years, the trumpet is to sound and a jubilee is to be declared. This was a Sabbath year for the land and also for all the tenants of the land who had somehow become displaced or detached from their ancestral property. On the 50th year, everyone is to return to their land. So this envisions a release of people who've had to sell themselves into indentured labor as a result of debt. So again, we have to remember the source of debt in those societies was, of course, agricultural by and large. A farmer borrowed money to buy an ox and a shipment of seed. He intended to pay back his creditors at harvest time, but for one reason or another, the harvest failed and he was unable to do so. And so, to pay his creditors, he sold a piece of his land. And if that didn't cover it, he sold another piece. And if that didn't cover it, he sold himself and his family to a neighboring landowner for a sum of money based on the number of years to the next jubilee. If it was 10 years to the next jubilee, then he sold that land and also, if necessary, that labor for a certain sum. If it was 20 years to the next jubilee, he sold it for a higher sum. Thus, no Israelite could be a permanent slave, nor could he become permanently separated from his ancestral land, at least in principle. His land sale was actually intended to be more of a long-term lease, again, based on the number of years to the next jubilee. If there were 10 years to the jubilee, he could lease his land out for a sum. If it was 20 years, again, it would be a larger sum. But on the Jubilee, the man and his family went free, and the land that was leased returned to the original owner. So it would be quite a special day. Obviously, the man would be free, and he would be a farmer again after several years, and perhaps even decades, as an indentured laborer. The system was thus intended to provide a bit of a safety net for the poor. You could still fail and fall, but not right to the bottom and not right off the board. The worst case scenario was that you would temporarily lose your farm and have to serve several years on someone else's, but then you'd get to start again. Now, in verses 18 to 22, we have a bit of an exhortation encouraging the Israelites to adhere to the system. Therefore, you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and then you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, 
What shall we eat in the seventh year, if we may not sow or gather in our crop? I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year, when its crop arrives. So again, just like back in Exodus 16, God promises to bless the sixth year so as to facilitate this process. I will provide the blessings that will enable you to obey this legislation. But if you don't obey it, then those blessings, and indeed the land itself, will be taken from you, as per verse 18. And that's why, incidentally, when the Sabbath cycles were neglected, both the weekly and the yearly, and even the bigger jubilee cycle, when those cycles were neglected, God took over and imposed a giant Sabbath cycle on the people in terms of the Babylonian exile. The Babylonian exile was for 70 years. It was a 10 times Sabbath cycle. And the Old Testament itself interprets this as a massive Sabbath cycle in lieu of the many Sabbath cycles that had been neglected. Second Chronicles 36 verses 20 to 21 says, He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons, until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Close quote. So the chronicler says that the king of Babylon was used by God essentially to impose a massive, very public and very humiliating Sabbath cycle on the people of God because they had been neglecting this particular aspect of their witness. They had been failing the Sabbath test. And so God sent them to summer school for 70 years. And so just like you learn at summer school, you, you quickly come to the conclusion that it is just better and wiser to trust God and to obey him precisely in the first place. God gives grace and then he expects obedience. And if he doesn't get it, he takes corrective action. That is a pattern that we observe over and over and over again in the Old Testament. And we would be wise to attend to that pattern and that principle in the modern day church. Verse 23, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to his property. So again, the basic principle here is that God is the owner of the land, and the people of Israel are his tenants. And by the way, that should help us when we come to the parable of the wicked tenants in Matthew 21. That would have been very familiar imagery to the original hearers of that parable. God owns the land, and he assigns it out to the nation as tenant farmers. And of course, what we're being reminded of here is that if a farmer falls into debt and has to sell his land, the first safeguard is the right of a kinsman to redeem it. 
So a brother or a cousin should attempt to buy the debt so that the man and his family could remain on the land. But if that's not a possibility, then the man would sell the land and likely himself and his family into slavery until the year of Jubilee when the land would be returned to him. The key here is that redemption prices and lease rates were all based on the number of years remaining until the year of Jubilee. If a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, he may redeem it within a year of its sale. For a full year, he shall have the right of redemption. If it is not redeemed within a full year, then the house in the walled city shall belong in perpetuity to the buyer throughout his generations. It shall not be released in the Jubilee. But the houses of the villages that have no wall around them shall be classified with the fields of the land. They may be redeemed, and they shall be released in the Jubilee. As for the cities of the Levites, the Levites may redeem at any time the houses in the cities they possess. And if one of the Levites exercises his right of redemption, then the house that was sold in a city they possess shall be released in the Jubilee. For the houses in the cities of the Levites are their possession among the people of Israel. But the fields of pasture land belonging to their cities may not be sold, for that is their possession forever. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. In verses 29 to 34, we have a variety of laws relating to special cases. Houses in town are not covered by this legislation, and if redeemed, must be redeemed within the year. This law, though, does not apply to houses owned by Levites because they didn't have any land. They just had their houses. So their houses are treated under the same law that applies to fields. Houses in the field fall under the same legislation applying to the field. In verses 35 to 38, we have another one of those encouragements and exhortations. Family members could very easily come to despise someone who has shamed them through mismanagement or foolishness. Of course, we're often less charitable and less merciful to our family members than we are to total strangers. But this passage is rebuking that tendency. It is telling the Israelites to be merciful, to be kind, and to do whatever is in their power to keep a close relative from falling into poverty and slavery. These commands, as always, are rooted in the character and redeeming work of God. Verse 39. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves." You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. This legislation deals with the scenario of an Israelite person who must sell himself and his family into indentured servitude. He must not be treated as a slave. He is to be understood as selling a certain number of years of labor, but he must be treated with dignity. The Israelites had been set 
free from slavery by God, and they must therefore never return to that state of bondage. As for the number of years, there were already laws in place dictating that the maximum term for Israelite indentured servitude was seven years. So this application of the Jubilee principle envisions a situation in which the seven years would be shortened by the occurrence of the 50-year Jubilee. So seven years or Jubilee, whichever came first, that was the maximum term of indentured servitude for a Hebrew person. This legislation thus seeks to preserve a sense of personal responsibility. A man could not just walk away from his debts, while at the same time preserving a sense of basic humanity. Eating a little humble pie is one thing. Being reduced to the state of an animal is quite another. And these laws attempt to steer the covenant community towards some kind of middle ground. Verse 44. As for your male and female slaves, whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you, who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them. But over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly. The rules discussed in verses 39 to 43 do not apply to foreigners. If foreigners sold themselves into slavery to an Israelite family, they were to be treated humanely, but they did not have access to the safeguards associated with the Sabbath year or the year of Jubilee. Verse 47. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich, and your brother beside him becomes poor, and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you, or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. Or if he grows rich he may redeem himself. He shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he sold himself to him until the year of Jubilee, and the price of his sale shall vary with the number of years. The time he was with his owner shall be rated as the time of a hired worker. If there are still many years left, he shall pay proportionately for his redemption some of his sale price. If there remain but a few years until the year of Jubilee, he shall calculate and pay for his redemption in proportion to his years of service. He shall treat him as a worker hired year by year. He shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed by these means, then he and his children with him shall be released in the year of Jubilee. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. These last regulations deal with the situation in which a poor Israelite might sell himself and his family as indentured workers to an alien landowner living nearby. As always, a family member of the poor man should attempt to redeem him. If there was no one able to do so, he may serve as a laborer until the seventh year or until the year of Jubilee, whichever came first. If someone is able to buy him out, then the price is to be based on the number of years of labor remaining on the contract before the year of release, either on the seventh year or the year of Jubilee. He is not to be treated harshly 
because as stated earlier, no Israelite in the land is to be treated as a slave. A laborer is one thing, but a slave is quite another. Ultimately, the Israelites belong to God. He is their master and they are his servants, and therefore they must be treated by others according to that understanding. While this legislation sought in an immediate sense to protect the poor and to remind the people of their special status as the redeemed of the Lord, in an ultimate sense, it prepared the covenant community to understand and celebrate the work of Messiah. What the kinsman redeemer did in a small sense and what the year of Jubilee did in a small sense, the person and work of Jesus accomplished in an eternal sense. He settles our debts and restores us to our original dignity, purpose, and possession. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you.